Every month, we offer exciting new webinars for our community. Topics include how to use retirement accounts to buy real estate overseas, how to get a second passport in Latin America, why you should sell your stock portfolio and move your money offshore, how to buy beachfront rental properties in Brazil for less than $100,000, or apartments in Paraguay for less than $60,000. If you want to join us for free for these presentations with live Q&A, insider secrets, and exclusive opportunities with my professional network of experts, then go to expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. That's expatmoney.com forward slash webinars to register for free upcoming presentations. expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. We all dream of seeing the world, but the realities of living somewhere outside your place of birth can be daunting to say the least. Welcome to the Expat Money Show, helping you make the most out of your overseas career through conversations with successful expats on investing, entrepreneurship, self-improvement, and continual education, all while sharpening your financial acumen. Now, please welcome your host with over 20 years of overseas experience, Mikkel Thorup. So you guys may have seen in the email newsletter that I got expatmoney.com. This is a URL that I have been wanting to get for like six years now. Some other company had it based out of Dubai and they wouldn't sell it to me. They weren't even using it. They weren't doing anything with it, but they wouldn't sell it to me. The guy just said, I'm going to hold on to it and you can't have it. So I tried to negotiate and we went back and forth many, many, many times over the years and I finally negotiated it. I'm not gonna tell you how much it cost, but it was not cheap. I paid a pretty penny for this. So the main website going forwards for all of my work is going to be expatmoney.com. We still have expatmoneyshow.com, but that's really gonna be designated just for the podcast itself. But on the other one, we're gonna have webinars. We have new articles. We started a new blog. We've got new lead magnets. We even started a store on there that we're gonna be selling different courses and programs. So there's gonna be tons of exciting things happening at expatmoney.com. So you guys can go there, check out the new website, let me know what you think and then bookmark the website because you're going to want to come back literally every single week because we got so much exciting things coming out. So expatmoney.com. I'm really excited. I hope you guys are too. There's going to be lots of cool stuff there for you. Okay, let's get to the interview. Welcome, welcome, welcome. My name is Mikkel Thorpe, and this is the Expat Money Show. Today's guest is a co-founder of EcoVillages.life, an eco-home and sustainable community design and development company and the founders of MavenNFT.io, a hard asset NFT marketplace. EcoVillages has defined the first community certification, that's F-I-R-S-T, community certification program, whereby other eco-friendly and sustainable-based community developments can become certified as implementing best practices. Please welcome to the show my very good friend, Patrick Hebert. Patrick, how are you? I'm excellent, Mikkel. Thanks for having me on the show today. Looking forward to chatting with you a bit. Me too. Now, usually we're having rums together and chit-chatting and alpining about the situation, but today we're on Zoom and we're going to be discussing two main things. We're going to be talking about Maven and what you're doing with NFT in properties and other hard assets, and we want to be talking about the communities. So maybe we can take a minute and kind of walk us through your backstory. How did you get interested in these couple of things or start developing these as a business? Yeah, sure, Mikkel. Well, like you, I'm originally from Canada. My father was into community building and homes and things like that, but I took a different route and 
got into software business and, and started a software company, actually software for the energy industry. So I was spending a lot of time between Texas and Alberta in the energy space, basically. And, you know, went through starting a couple of companies in that space and was fortunate enough to sell them kind of around, right around the dot-com era and was lucky enough to be able to step back a little bit from the rat race and spend some time with my kids. And when they were young, now they're in their late 20s, but at the time they were, they were young kids and it was good to spend some time with them. And I you know, got into sailing and, and boating around with my son a lot, with the whole family, but my son really kind of adopted the sailing bug as well. Over time, that we really liked the idea of how efficient sailboats were and living off the grid. Like when you're out in the ocean, you don't have a long extension cord to your boat, so your power isn't there. You're generating and conserving your own water and all those sorts of things. And we always made a game of it kind of like to be as sustainable as possible. We'd catch fish and eat sea asparagus and stuff like that and the things that we could find out in the ocean. Really just loved that lifestyle and wanted to come back and apply it to land. And one of the things, obviously, in Canada, and especially in, when we were in the Vancouver Island, Vancouver area, and it was very gray and for half of the year, so creating solar power required a lot of work. But when I came down to Central America with my family on a trip, I was thinking, well, this is an awesome spot to, to create this land-based, efficient, sustainable type of communities. And that's really how it started almost 20 years ago now. And you know, things have just gone from there. Okay, so break down the sustainable, because I think the first thing that comes to mind when I hear sustainable is more from the left, the green, Green New Deal, these types of things. But knowing you, I don't think that's really what you're most concerned about. Yeah, I don't think I could even fake being too far on the left. <laughs> I, actually, I, I like you, I think we're both kind of libertarian, you know, different parts on the spectrum, maybe. I've always felt I was kind of centric. I feel like the, the, the graph has moved. Not, I haven't moved, but somehow I'm seen as quite right-wing, I guess, now, even though I still think I'm very centric and libertarian. But yeah, I mean, we use the word eco-sensible because, to be honest, the, for instance, you take an example, the solar panels that we put on homes. Well, that saves you money. If I, The way I like to live is have zero power bill at all, right? So I'm conscious about the power I'm using and, and I generate my own. So to me, it's more of a financial or monetary thing than it is really being, like we said, we're eco-sensible, not eco-fanatic. And that doesn't mean that it's not good to be a good Earth citizen as well. And, you know, I, I don't like seeing garbage in the oceans or like nobody does, right? But I, we're not the fanatic type. But the bottom line is none of these green types of concepts are sustainable unless they also benefit you financially. I mean, you can only live off of feeling good for so long. So... We really focus on the financial benefits of wind power, solar power, recycling, gray water, and those sorts of things, right? So. Well, and I think that we're not looking at it as a way to get government subsidies or move the technology along by getting handouts from public institutions. I mean, a lot of this you can also use to be separated from the grid, or if there's problems with a hurricane or other types of natural disasters or problems with civil unrest with the power and producing your own food and everything like that. I think it's just prudent and a lot more safe. Yeah. And really the rationale behind it all comes back to one thing, and that's kind of freedom, right? And you mentioned up front, the, the Eco Villages has created the first FIRST certification program that we're going to be rolling out shortly. And Really, F is for freedom, I is for independence of economy, R is for resilience, S for sustainable, 
and T for togetherness and community, right? So really they all come together the same thing. So it's not like, oh, he's green, he's over here and, and that guy's doing this and it all comes together for the, you know, I guess the sustainable thing is one of the, the most important parts of it, right? You know, we have lifestyle farms, for instance, on our, in our communities. So people can have a small, what you and I might've called hobby farms when we were younger, right? But you, you might have chickens or goats and, you know, growing some food and everything and for the community, really to make that community resilient from outside forces. That's really the rationale behind all the pieces of it. Yeah, I think that these are important points to understand right from the beginning when the sustainability, we're really talking about it from the economic side, the personal responsibility side, a lot of the libertarian values that run through the communities that you're building. So why don't you talk us through all of the different types that are included in sustainability. I mean, you quickly mentioned solar, you quickly mentioned the hobby farm, but maybe we can dig into these ideas and anything else that are part of the sustainable model. Yeah, sure. I, I mean, that 30,000 feet really, you know, it's what human beings need to be sustained, right? I mean, you need shelter, water, and food for the most part, and energy I would add in there as well. So once you have those pieces taken care of, you really can then kind of build out from that point. So Obviously, growing our own food, we have a lot of community orchards and gardens in the, in the communities, water sourced inside the community, water wells that are purified within the community. Obviously, we talked about solar power, wind power, sometimes hydropower if there's a, a creek or river running through the communities. You know, whatever we can do to generate our own food, our own water source, our own power. Okay, why don't we go in depth on these different pieces of the sustainability? So, I mean, you quickly mentioned the water, but let's go into detail on this. Then let's go into the detail on the food. I want to understand as a community, how this is going to be able to help, what the technology that is involved, the responsibilities, how these types of things will be built. I mean, feel free to go hog wild on the details because I think this stuff is really, really important. Well, sure. I mean, on the water, for instance, the gray water recycling. I mean, people throw that around like a buzzword a lot and you know, you don't really know what that means. But the reality of it is, you know, a large portion, 90% of your water in your home is going from your shower, your kitchen sink, your, you know, your bathroom sinks, all the, the gray water. So we separate the gray, that stuff from the black water, the sewer. And the sewer, we can talk about that separately as how it, you know, it goes through different treatment as well. But, but on the gray water, we reuse that on, you know, your gardens and sometimes your green roofs, if you have a green roof on your home and those sorts of things. And realistically, you know, I know with the developers that we've worked in the past, I've always wished they had had two lines of, of water, right? One potable for your, your drinking water and one that wasn't treated because you're treating so much water, wasting so much chemicals, basically, when you're spraying it on your grass to water the lawn, right? So the grass and the flowers and things don't need treated water. So that's another part where if you're going to treat it all, you might as well make use of it twice. So... The, the best thing that we've found is reusing the you know shower water, like I was saying, it goes through a grease trap and it's very simple, a little concrete box in the ground. Water runs in one way, it traps the grease, water comes out the other side. And, and if you're not using it, it just overflows into a drainage system. So, you know, it's not like it's going to flood your lawn or anything like that. Okay. Now, do you have to use special soaps when you're going to be using this type of gray water so that if you're watering the grass or the garden or the fruits and vegetables that you're not polluting all that stuff? Well, realistically, some of the worst, you know, eco soaps are probably the things that plants like the most <laughs> have all the, the nitrogen in. But in terms of being a, a good earth citizen, I guess, yes, we, we recommend, you know, certain soaps. Although, I mean, let's be honest, there are some that are not all 
eco soaps, for instance, are created equal. Some just don't clean anything. You know, it's just a marketing nonsense. You know, there's a spectrum of that. So like everything else that we have, we try to just say, be reasonable, right? And, and realistically, the amount of soap that you use in a shower compared to putting it over your lawn over the course of a year is so minuscule that, you know, it, it's really, people get wound up about that kind of stuff all the time. But it's, you know, if you actually look at the statistics, it's, it's nothing. Well, that'd be the eco-sensible opposed to eco-Nazis, like I think. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, it's the same on the, the construction methodology. We're also all about making sure that we're employing local people, right? So we don't ship in our tiny homes from China or, you know, something like that. We're building them on site here with local materials. And sometimes we get criticized, like, well, you're building concrete homes. And it's like, yeah, because the locals know how to use concrete. That concrete home is going to be there for 500 years with almost zero maintenance. And you tell me that's not eco-friendly. I mean, that how many times if it's wood or some other, you know, metal rotting materials, is it going to have to be maintained along that time in 500 years? Right? So there's always a logical argument for what we're doing. And that's why we try not to get caught up in the, like you said, the green Nazi kind of thought pattern where it's like, oh, I, I heard this. And so for, therefore you guys must be doing something wrong. Now with the communities that you're building, they are already built to be eco-friendly and have these types of water systems in place, right? We're not talking about a community and then having to go in and retrofit everything and redo problems that were already existing from another builder, right? Most of our properties or or communities are starting from scratch, basically, or within, sometimes within another community, but we have kind of a boundary for where we work within. Yes. How about the black water? Why don't you explain how this is treated and how it's handled in the community? Because I know that there's a bit of an uproar with these types of processes as well. Yeah, I mean, they're actually fairly simple systems these days. They're very state-of-the-art. They usually have four or five components to it, and they're modular, so you can kind of expand them as the community grows. But realistically, you know, your black water comes in one end and out the other end, theoretically drinkable water. I don't necessarily suggest I would, but just knowing where it came from. We reuse that as well, obviously, like communities that have a golf course or an orchard or whatever, that, that water is used to water those those places and the rest is dealt with by the bacteria in the system. And It's very efficient and very friendly to the earth as well. So is that all handled by the community on a central location or those are handled on a plot by plot basis, the same as the gray water would be? It's sort of dependent on the community and actually dependent on the country or the municipality that it's in. They have different rules. We have examples where each home needs to have its mini version of that little active septic system. And obviously, then we have other ones where it's all going into one system and, and the whole community is treated. Yeah, because I said a bit of an uproar because I've read of some of these communities that are promoting organic food or 100% organic, and they're using gray water or black water, and there's chemicals that are coming from those that are being used in the fields. So some people don't understand how you can claim this is 100% organic. So that's why I'm kind of digging into these a little bit. I guess in, in today's world, it's very difficult to claim anything's 100% organic. I mean, you're only as good as their closest neighbor that you know, is, is not following the rules, right? Or the same approach. But in general, you know, with our, I'm trying to think of with any of our communities, if they're, I mean, they're always kind of part of the part of being freedom is, you know, you're, you're not generally inside a city, you're out in a more rural area, and they're generally quite isolated to some extent from the others. Another thing about all the Latin America, well, we're based in Latin America, we have all our communities. At this point, we're looking at in Africa, we're looking outside of different continents as well. But 
Right now, everything is in Central or South America. And these countries kind of veering off a little bit, but here's an example. We have an agroforestry farm of teak and avocado, and it's organic and, and everything. When people came down, we had some Texan farmers come down to try to talk to our Nicaraguan, this is a Nicaraguan, Nicaraguan farmers. And they were supposed to be teaching the Nicaraguans how to farm with herbicides and pesticides and things like that. And we had a little meeting on our farm. At the time, it was a peanut farm. And the, there was a peanut beetle in there. And the, and the Texan farmers, not to pick on Texas, but the Texan farmers were saying, oh, you should use this pesticide or whatever. And, you know, one little Nicaraguan shy farmer kind of stood up and said, well, why would you do that? And he's like, well, you get rid of these beetles. Well, they don't like lemongrass. So we just plant lemongrass every six feet or so, two meters. And the beetles leave. And sure enough, we did that and the beetles left without any chemicals at all. So that's the kind of thing like who learned from who in that situation, right? And so down here in Central and South America, you know, there is a lot more organics because frankly, the pesticides and herbicides are too expensive. I mean, there are big rum companies that spray their cane fields, sugar cane fields, because they have a quota that they have to meet. And if you're nearby then, you're going to get some potential spray, right? But in general, the, the small-time farmers are all organic by nature down here. So, okay, that's a good segue into the food then. So with the communities, do you purposefully go out there and speak to the local farmers and find out what their best practices are? Because they've been on this land for hundreds of years. I would think that they would have insights and intelligence that we're just not going to know as expats coming down into these countries. Yeah, there's so many things down here that are different than people like you and I from a northern climate. I mean, your whole culture has been built around harvesting and then providing for half a year where it's freezing and nothing grows, right? Whereas down here, they don't think that way at all. They think, how many harvests can we get a year? You know, what would we alternate? What months do we want to have this product or this produce? And so it's just a totally different way of thinking. It also changes the way the culture reacts, I think, to stress and things, right? Because if you know that any day you can go out and pick a banana or a mango or go catch a fish in the in the river or the ocean, and you had to store no food ever, then your mindset's a little different than those of us that come from, you know, Nordic or Northern climates, right? So absolutely, it's a bit ridiculous to come down here with, I mean, I grew up in a farming community in central Canada, in a tiny little town surrounded by farms. And I could probably apply 10 or 20% of that to what grows well in, in farming down here, just because it's just so radically different. So absolutely, we really focus on having, well, not only learning from the local farmers, but having the local farmers have a central marketplace within the communities where, you know, on Tuesdays or Saturdays or something, they'll, you know, in the morning they'll come in and it will be like a bunch of kiosks with whatever fruit and vegetables or chickens or whatever they're selling. And people can stock up for the week by just going to their own little community market. Well, I love that because Replace that with how food is traditionally bought now on little styrofoam packets. And the relationship that people have with food is very disjointed from reality. I also think that it also shows a ton of respect for the local community by actually asking them for their help and understanding what they've built. I mean, so many times foreigners will enter a new country and think that they know best. And after 22 years of traveling around the world, I can tell you this is just not the case. I mean, you really need to show respect of the communities that you're entering into. Yeah. And even though you and I are residents in different countries around the area, in your case, around the world, we are visitors here. Ultimately, at the end of the day, this isn't where we were born and we're learning every day about the, what's going on. And in our communities, we never want to 
isolate ourselves from the local community. I, I think being part of the local community makes the, the communities we build so much stronger. We have a foundation called Help Them Help Themselves that gets very involved in the local communities around the, the local villages and area around the communities that we build. And we build clinics and schools and lots of homes and help with different things and baseball diamonds and everything to mix, you know, and then people in our communities will teach English in a school close by or guitar lessons or something, right? So there's a lot of mixing between the, the local people around the communities. It's not just a, a center of expats that don't talk to anybody. Yeah. I mean, this is something that I really stand for. I really see a big difference or what I'm trying to promote as an expat in inclusion and understanding the culture and the history and the language and the food and making friends with the local people and incorporating yourself into the country that you're moving to instead of trying to make the country fit your value stream. I think that it's really important as an expat to understand that you are a guest in someone else's place and making every opportunity to try to fit in. Because otherwise, for me, it's like, what is the point of being an expat? I mean, you're just a long-term tourist. If you're unhappy where you're living now and you want to live somewhere else, why would you change somewhere else into where you work? My wife and I, Andrea and I have a great lifestyle down here. We're fortunate enough to be able to travel to all these countries all the time as part of our job. But we live in countries here where, you know, family is extremely important to everybody. My wife at this moment is, she's from Ecuador. She's in Ecuador visiting her family. One of the reasons we've chosen Panama City as a center point for our, us to live in is partly because of my travel schedule and Panama's a hub, so it's easy to get around. But it's also very convenient for her to get back to Ecuador and it's all part of family for her. So, and for them to come visit us. And that's one of the things I've noticed when I first came down to Central America. I first got my residency in Nicaragua, it was my first one. And I remember walking down with my little Germanic kids who are blonde and blue eyed and they sort of stick out in the crowd. And a guy came up to me and was, you know, in Spanish, of course, was saying, Oh, you're a very wealthy man. And I was like, Oh, here it comes, right? He's, he wants some money or something. And it turns out, no, he's just like, You're a very lucky, you know, family, wealthy man, you have three beautiful children that are along with you. And so it made me quickly realize that, uh, you know, what we take, you know, in our careers is valuable sometimes is not the same in these cultures. And I really appreciate the family and the, and just that whole orientation of the culture. Yeah. I love that about Latin America. They are family first at all times. And I mean, there's just always a party going on or a birthday and everybody gets involved and they'll invite you. And I like, the Latin culture is just so warm and just so open. And I mean, if people are looking for getting back to traditional values, I think Latin America is absolutely the perfect place for this. Okay. On the food front, now discuss with me the differences between the hobby farms. What is the idea or the concept or maybe more the practicalities of the hobby farm? As you can imagine, with a lot of people from U.S., Canada, Europe, Australia, all wanting to kind of get away from the authoritarian type of governments they're, they're encountering. A ton of it is about sustainability, too. You don't want to be reliant on government or corporations anymore. And so not everybody wants to be a farmer, but community is kind of a microcosm of, of a bigger picture. And so we've started incorporating, well, we call them lifestyle farms, but they are basically the, the hobby farm idea. And they produce more food than the people that have the, have the small farm can eat. So it, it's really producing food for the community. And again, there's community orchards, community gardens, and, and, and shared gardens like that. But then some people are also specifically interested in, in, in doing their own you know, gardening or farming of some sort. 
different small crops and things like that. So the idea is to try to be able to basically create a balanced diet within within the community and support itself. So the resiliency side of things is if everything goes to hell and around you, that this community is you know sustainable. It doesn't have to worry about whether the grocery store's shelves are empty. That's kind of the concept. So when these communities are completed, do you think that they'll be 100% self-sustaining on the food front? There's a spectrum of the communities. Obviously, when we've been moving along as we've you know, learned more in this business as well, and as you and I have talked about some of the new communities that we're coming out with in the, in the next few months, those for sure are planned to be 100% self-sustainable. Like I said, some of our communities are built within other resorts or within other neighborhoods. You know, They just don't have the space to be completely you know, self-sustaining. That's kind of a spectrum, I guess. Well, I love this idea because it's something that so many people want to do. But instead of having to go out there and do everything 100% on your own and figure out everything, like having your own homestead, it's coming together with other like-minded people, people who share similar belief patterns and philosophical ideas and bounding together to create a community that will be self-sufficient. I think that this is a much better way to go about this. Yeah, and, and those two things together, like the self-sustaining ability plus like-minded people, you hit the nail on the head, right? People think, okay, I'm going to go out and, and have a self-sustainable lifestyle on my own little farm, and I'll be out there isolated. And I won't know anybody. There's no campfire in the center of town to kind of gather around and talk to people. And you know what life is like in North America and social media and stuff. It's so easy to be censored or canceled if you say anything that slightly offends somebody on one side of the fence. and these communities are the polar opposite of that. First of all, they attract like-minded people to start with. But even, you know, you can agree to disagree with people in these communities and you're not going to get canceled, right? Because we're more mature than that. And we've, you know, agreed that, okay, you know, you and I can talk all evening and agree on 99% of it, but 1% of things, I think we even said the other day, I think we're going to have to agree to disagree on that. And that's okay. You're, you're still a good friend of mine and it's not a problem. But these days in society, it just seems like it's so divisive and so tiring. People's families and friends are just getting ripped apart. And so these communities really are, you said inclusive. That word, I almost don't like to use it because it's used so much, you know, on the woke front. No woke for me. Don't worry about that. No woke for me. <laughs> no, I know. I know you well enough. But, you know, it's almost like you have to choose your words carefully now because they've been taken to mean something else. Yeah. I mean, they've perverted the vocabulary in so many directions now. They're rewriting the dictionary on how words are used and it, it's pretty sad and messed up. All right. Well, we've talked about the water. We've talked about the food front. Let's get into energy. And then I definitely want to talk about security because I think it is at the forefront of a lot of people's minds. Sure. Well, on the energy front, we talked a little bit about it in terms of we focus on trying to keep it fairly simple. We do have completely off-grid communities, but we have a lot that are hybrid as well, where there is grid power, but they're mixed in a hybrid with solar is the most popular, some wind power and some water, hydropower as well. But solar is by far the, the easiest to install, the least expensive and the most reliable down here with the amount of sunlight we get. Despite the fact that I prefer to be completely off-grid, I know that you know I'm not going to go to the beach and leave my air conditioner on because I know that I'm going to be depleting my batteries and for no good reason. And a lot of people just like the convenience, I guess, of having grid power to know that, oh, well, I know I'm spending $100 more than I need to this month, but I'm going to do it anyway. I, to me, it's always more challenging to just learn to be smart about it. And we overbuild the solar systems too, so that 
they are pretty much foolproof, right? Like I said, a lot of people just have a more comfortable feeling if it's a hybrid system. It's like, okay, I know that if for some reason I'm having a New Year's Eve party to four in the morning and my batteries die, grid power is going to click on and, and keep me going. So that on the power front, it's usually a, either 100% solar or a mix of solar and grid power. And the solar, these are incorporated into the homes themselves, or this is a central location where you're going to have almost like a little mini power plant that's going to take care of the community? Yeah, we, you know, we've experimented with a lot of things up front and ultimately more because of people than because of technology that we've gone with. Each home has its own system. We can meter between them, like we can connect the home. So, you know, if you're not in your home for the next month because you're traveling, well, it's a lot of wasted power that's not getting used, right? So there are systems that we can use to balance that so that your neighbor basically uses your power that you're not using. It's free for everybody anyway, if it's solar power. But surprisingly, you know, that we found at least so far, people don't like the centralized system. They feel like somebody's using more than they are somehow. And I don't really understand it completely, but for whatever reason, it was just so much easier for us to go with the individual systems. And then people have more control over it too, because one guy might want to have five air conditioners going at one time. And and one guy is kind of like, I know I like the climate, I'm not going to use air conditioners. So they can size their systems and, and size their outlay of expense, which is ultimately probably the reason that we've had to go separate systems. One guy might want to have like a huge system and one said, no, I, I don't need it because I'm not going to use that much power so I can save a lot of money on a lot of on the upfront cost of putting in the systems. So on the installation cost. Yeah. And when living in, in Canada, a system I had had about a 25, 20 to 25 year payback, right? So that thing had to be going for the next 25 years of my life before I broke even. Uh, well, here it's a two things. Like, there's a lot of sun and power is expensive. So our systems have three to four year payback time. And then it's all gravy after that. Your power, whatever you put into buying your system up front is now paid for because you're not using the grid. And then everything after that is free. Well, maybe we can use the excess power and mine Bitcoin or something like that. (laughs) Well, we we do have one of the communities that we're designing. There is solar powered Bitcoin or crypto mining and even little things like an outdoor workout gym, basically, where you know, you're running on a treadmill and those things are generating power, which is it's small in comparison to what's needed, but it's all adding together and creating a Bitcoin mining center power. That's awesome. I can't wait to see that. That is going to be rad. What about backup generators? Will you have like diesel generators or anything on site, do you think? We've got a couple different plans that we've used. In some of our communities, they have, honestly, just a typical little Honda two kilowatt generator, you know, you literally have to service them for doing nothing because they almost never get turned on. But if you had some kind of catastrophic failure of your solar system for some reason, then you could fire up the generator and still, you know, keep your bedroom cool at night for sleeping or, or whatever. They're really a backup plan. We don't generally put in some massive generator in the center of the community that controls everything. But we also, you know, have occasional places, depending on where the, the community is, but have like a wind power, right? Where you, you can just have one of those smaller, they're four to 800 watt fans that generate that kind of level. That's enough to keep on one air conditioner, basically. You know, a lot of the climate that we have here is it's calm and sunny during the day. And of course the sun sets and so now you don't have solar power. Obviously we have batteries, but if to keep your batteries topped up, you know, a little wind turbine can do that because you get a breeze at night often. So. And the batteries, are they car batteries that are used for this? Or are these like the Tesla home batteries or something else completely? 
They're LiPo batteries, the latest version of lithium batteries, the ones that don't explode, basically. <laughs> That's good. And yeah, you know, when we started a decade and a half ago, yeah, they were all basically deep cycle golf cart batteries that we were using and, and or marine deep cycle batteries. The problem with those is that they get down to 60 or 70% depleted and then it goes to zero instantly, right? And lithium batteries just have a nice solid downward slope to 10%, 5%, and they still produce the same amount of power when they're down to 10%. And so, A, a lot longer life, they produce a lot more power. They're obviously, they're not full of acid and liquid. <laughs> so, you know, there's a lot of good things to them. And we currently don't use Tesla's products just because you're paying for the name, to be honest. I mean, I, I like Tesla as a company, but, you know, I'm not going to pay $7,000 for a wall pack when it's $3,500 for the exact same thing somewhere else. Yeah, I'm sure we can order them from China. My wife will get on the phone and, and help order and source them at a better price. I think China's leading the way in these types of electric vehicle batteries and these types of power grids anyways. Yeah, I mean, even on the electric vehicle side, we did import a, a solar-powered car to one of our communities in, in Nicaragua. But we're basically going to have shuttles that go around the communities. Like there's a usually common areas and you have like an amphitheater stage or some pools and different types of natural ponds and things like that. To, and we'll have a, the next communities we're having to have a, a solar powered shuttle that drives you around or solar powered golf carts, basically, but a big version of that. And yeah, China's really made huge headways in that. I mean, they used to be where the quality wasn't good and we were getting most of our panels from Germany, but you know, that's changing over the years. And the technology changes. I mean, when we started, the panels were 125 watts per panel, you know, the size of your dinner table. And then now they're 600 plus, right? So the same size or smaller. So the amount of footprint that you're taking up with them too makes it a lot easier to do like the, the tiny homes that we do. I mean, we do mid-size, big estate homes, condominiums, all sorts of things, hotels. But when you're working on a tiny home, it's tough. You only have a very small footprint that you've got to put all your panels on top of. So if you look at some of our designs, you'll often see like a kind of a pergola roof on the top where we make a deck out of it and, and use the panels as shading and producing power at the same time. Amazing. Big announcement. We have launched Expat Money Summit. I am so excited. You know, this is something that I've wanted to do for several years now, but the timing was just never quite right. But now it is. Our team is growing. I think we've got about 10 people who are part of the expat money team now. So I've got a lot of support. I got a lot of help that's going to help me put this on. But this year's event is going to be absolutely massive. Like I can't stress this enough. This event is going to be a complete game changer. Every other summit is going to pale in comparison to this one. Other companies are going to look at our summit as a model on how to successfully run an offshore summit. We are going to eat everybody's lunch. It's going to be epic slash hilarious. You know why? Because the summit is free. Normally, people charge thousands of dollars for this types of information, but I thought, you know what? I want to put it out there for free to as many people as possible because the information is so necessary. I need people to get this stuff. I need to try to help as many people as possible. So what I ask in return is your support. What you can do is go to expatmoneysummit.com. You can get yourself a free ticket. 
then share the shit out of this all over social media. If you have an email newsletter or if you have friends who might be interested in this stuff, then send it to them too. We got to get the word out. The goal here is 30,000 attendees. That's what I'm hoping for. It's a lofty goal. I won't lie with you. It's a lofty goal, but this summit is going to be unbelievable. It's going to be a complete game changer and we're going to help so many people. So I need your support. Go to expatmoneysummit.com, get yourself a free ticket and then share it with as many people as possible to raise awareness. We have so many amazing speakers from around the world. I think we have over 30 speakers at this point during our five-day conference. I'm so excited. That's all I can say. I'm just so, so excited. I hope you guys are too. I hope I can count on you for all of your support. expatmoneysummit.com. And yeah, let's do it. Okay, let's get into security. These communities, are they walled? Do you guys have security on site? How are the people protected? I mean, if people are coming from all over the world, they're definitely going to want to make sure that their family is safe down here. It's a big topic, right? And we could talk about Central America, South America security for a long time. But I mean, the problem is that it gets such a bad rap sometimes, and it certainly doesn't deserve it. So security in general is really... I mean, we don't. We obviously don't make our communities in high crime areas either. So people have misperceptions of, of places like, you know, Nicaragua. Nicaragua is the second or third safest country in all the Americas. But people's memory, at least in my age group, is like Nicaragua wasn't that guerrilla warfare and everything. Well, that was 40 years ago, 50 years ago, right? So it's now one of the safest countries in the world. And for instance, our communities—they're generally gated. I mean, there's a guard at the front gate. There's sometimes guards on the perimeter, but it's really more of a feel-good thing for the residents. It's not fenced in. We don't have crime problems. You know, what we were talking about earlier, when you become part of the community that surrounds you and you're employing a lot of people inside the community that are from around there, you're considered kind of one of the people. Why would we attack this thing that's putting bread on our table? So we've had hundreds of employees from the surrounding communities inside our communities and they love it. Like, I mean, they're very supportive. And, you know, if anything ever does, like if someone ever had their home broken into or something, the, the local people are the ones that are the most upset. Right? Like, don't scare these people off. Yeah, I think that there can be such a net benefit for money coming into these types of communities, the larger communities, not just yours, but the larger community in the areas that I think that the local people don't want to jeopardize that or scare people off. I also think that by incorporating them and making it part of our group, like you said, like people will need house cleaners or you do have markets on a twice weekly basis. You're going to employ the security guards, the groundskeeper, the person who takes care of the pool. I mean, there's just like 101 jobs that would need to be done and someone needs to do them. So if we pay them fairly and we take care of them and we treat the people with respect, then I don't think that you're going to have the same type of problems as maybe you might imagine that might happen. Yeah. And even the more professional type of jobs, like for our company, all of our architects that we employ are from Central America. So, you know, we're one of the things that I learned up front, one of the reasons I named our foundation, Help Them Help Themselves, was creating employment was by far the biggest benefit to anything that we could do. I mean, we learned the hard way, right? We went into a town and, you know, we'd build five houses or something and people would go, well, why did they get a house? And I didn't. So then we learned, okay, well, let's go to sort of the town village elders and say, who's in most need of something? And then they have to get involved and help as well. So then they take some ownership in it. And one of the saddest things I saw, the oldest city in the Americas, Granada, 
here. In, it's actually in, in Nicaragua. Beautiful city beside a lake. It's like where the pirates of the Caribbean used to come in and lots of history there. But there was never any begging at all in the town, right? Until North Americans basically came down and started handing out some eight-year-old little girls say, oh, you know, here's a flower or whatever. And they give her $5 or something. Well, $5 is a dollar more than her dad makes in a factory for a day. So he's got four other kids. What do you think he's going to do? He pulls up a launcher on the corner of the street and all his kids are now begging. And that's how easy it is to kind of ruin these communities by giving something for nothing. So we really struggled with that in the beginning. And then we realized that it may sound rude when I take people into these communities, just touring people around. It's like, don't give anybody anything for nothing. I mean, if you want to say, look, there's some garbage in the gutters of the street or whatever, and you, I'm going to come back in half an hour. And if that's clean, I'm going to give you something for it, right? That, then you've earned it right? and you've done something for it. That just makes everybody so much better off than you know, the, the handouts stuff. Little off tangent, but that really does go with security too, right? As soon as you start handing out something for nothing, the communities around you start thinking, well, you're just Santa Claus. You're not a real person. And then they get this perception that you have endless funds. So if I want to take your bicycle off your yard, well, you're not going to miss it because you can just buy another one with your billions of dollars that you have. The perception becomes all wrong. So we don't really have any crime problems in the communities we've created because we're part of the community around them. Well, and two other things that I wanted to quickly mention about security, because you will actually know your neighbors, like these are people that you will be having barbecues with and spending time with and friends and like-minded people. You're not just one random person by yourself in a city. So you'll know everybody who's around. So if you're out traveling, like I travel like crazy to have my next door neighbors, keep one eye on my place is easy. Like it'll be super, super easy. People will know who belong in the community at night, who doesn't fit in there, who's not a resident of this community. So I think that goes a long way. One other point that I'll mention about security, and I don't think it's really necessary in these communities, but just in Panama, I can speak to the fact that we can now legally get firearms. I know that a lot of, especially my American clients, are always very concerned about what are they going to do with their firearms? Do they have to sell them in the United States? Can they bring them with them? Now we actually have viable options for not just bringing down your firearms, but purchasing firearms, getting a license to own them, and getting a license to carry them. And printing them. Yeah, and uh, you saw the other week's episode. Yeah, I think that these things are important. And I mean, if we get the zombie apocalypse, then yeah, I want to be armed for sure. <laughs> you know, it's not obvious people aren't walking around with guns in the communities, but it, a lot of people in the communities have guns and, you know, each person is a little different. But that's the whole thing about freedom of choice. You can do what you want. And you'd mentioned, you know, the whole community aspect earlier, you know, your neighbors. It's not like living in a city where you pull into your driveway, into your garage, and then you get out of your garage and you're in your house and you haven't seen anybody, or you have eight foot tall fences around your yard and all that sort of thing. Our communities are designed specifically. So you do kind of force people to walk past each other's homes you know, on the sidewalks and the pathways and go, hey, Fred, how are you doing? Let's get together for poker next week or something. And that actually does happen in these communities. I mean, the people are very community oriented. They usually gather to watch sunsets and have a glass of wine or something like that. And everybody gets to know everybody. And like you said, if all of a sudden there's somebody that doesn't seem to be belong, I mean, it's not like they are, you know, getting mauled or anything. It's just like, <laughs> hey, what are you doing here, right? And, you know, if it's a new community person, I've seen a lot. Obviously, you and I work with a ton of people coming down from North America, Europe, wherever, 
moving to these communities and asking about, well, am I going to be able to meet anybody? And that, that's a last year problems. You're going to, you're going to want to not meet anybody for a while after a while. Yeah, legit. <laughs> every day you're moving or you're meeting new people. So I, I like that about these communities. It makes it a little tough for, for my wife and I to, when we go to them, it's like everybody wants a little piece of your time, but it's still, it's, it's a very family oriented. Somebody had a great saying the other day, and I'm trying to remember what it was, but it's your soul family versus your biological family. When you're all kind of like-minded and you're getting along, it's, it's a really nice community feeling. Well, I know so many clients of mine who have moved down to Latin America, and they have told me that their social life is five times, 10 times more active than it was back home. I mean, back home, what happens a lot of times is you you know, spend time with the people that you went to high school with or college with, or if you play some sports, maybe you'll see them on a once a month basis or something, but then you kind of get stuck in your rut and you don't meet a lot of new people. And it's always the same people, same conversations. But when you move to a new country and especially in Latin America, it's like everybody is on even footing. Everybody is an expat in this place. So it doesn't matter if you've been there for a year or you've been there for a week, like everybody's on the same footing. And to go up and talk to others is really, really easy. And there's always someone to share stories with or have a beer with or go out for dinner. I mean, goodness, my wife and I probably go out for dinner four nights a week or something like that here in Panama. I was just going to say the same thing. I was out last night with a new person that I just met and the night before with somebody else and as you know, once you're down here for a while, you become kind of the expert on where you're living. And then you have lots of people that want to, you know, have dinner with you and, and you get a lot of free dinners, I guess, right? <laughs> people weren't saying, no, it, it is great. It, I hadn't thought of that before. You said like in, where you and I grew up, you hang out, you might be 40 years old, but you're still hanging out with your high school friends. That isn't the case for you and I anymore, right? We're, we're meeting new people all over the place. Like, I, I don't know if there's a country that I don't know somebody from at this point, right? Because they're so much moving around these days. And we're seeing, I would estimate a 10 to 20 times like growth in the number of people coming down to this part of the world, you know, for obvious reasons with the way governments treated COVID and everything. But I mean, we were doing this five years ago. You know, even then I felt like, oh, I'm sure meeting a lot of people. Now it's just off the charts. Like there's no worries that anybody needs to have about making new friends. They'll make lots. Yeah. I think that's why we really stress that this is a community. This is not just like, hey, it's a house or it's a home. I mean, this is a community. This is a group of people that are getting together. Well, one of the other things I was going to mention too is that in these communities, well, because they're they're generally less expensive than where you're coming from, general Central American real estate, for instance, is less expensive. And of course, if you're getting into efficient homes, like a tiny home or something, that's even less expensive. But people tend to have sometimes two or three homes. My wife and I have a place here on the Pacific, a couple places on the Pacific Ocean, one here, one in Nicaragua, here being Panama right now, and then one in, in Honduras on the East Coast, uh, the Caribbean coast. So we get the benefit of hanging out in the Caribbean, and a lot of people do that, and they're typical digital nomads, but they've kind of got their routine now. It's like I spend January to April in one on the Pacific side because that's when the weather's the nicest or something, and then you know maybe I go to the Caribbean side, and then maybe the highlands here in Panama because I like to have the cooler weather for a while and you get worn out at the, at the heat of the beach every day. So that's one of the things that I think that I, when I talk about my lifestyle and my wife and my lifestyle that I love the most is that we're a bit nomadic, I guess, anyway. So if you are that type of person, you still get that community. And it's almost like, you know, going to a high school reunion when you go back to your next community, you go to the Caribbean and say, Hey, Pat, how's it going? I haven't seen you for a few months. Right. And, and then you're there for three or four months and then you go to the next one, you get that same over again. It's a really nice lifestyle to have. Well, and then 
from the financial side, I mean, the prices of real estate back home in Canada and the United States is absolutely through the roof. I had my literally my best friend I've known since I was four or five years old. He came down to Panama to visit me a couple of months ago, and he was showing me pictures of the real estate. And he was showing me this one, and it looked like an absolute crack shack. Like if I told people I live there, I would be like legit embarrassed. And it was $800,000. Now that's 800,000 Canadian, which is like $27 or something, but still I couldn't believe it when he told me that I'm like, do you know what you would get down here? Like you can easily get three or four nice properties down in Latin America for 800,000. What people do and it pays for their living, that pays for their lifestyle is if you have three or four spread around different places and depending on which community, like some of our communities are more rental destinations than others. But, you know, if you pick smartly, you're gonna, if you're going to do that routine, let's say four months in three different places throughout the year, then the other two that you're not in, you're renting out. And we always build in like owner lockout closets and all those sorts of things. So you just pack your stuff and go and then put it into the rental program, which we have, you know, rental companies in each one of the communities. And, and away you go, right? And, and the rental income you're making from two is paying for your whatever you want to do in your life in the other one. And, and you can keep that whole routine going. So if you're coming out of North America and lucky enough to be able to sell, like where my son Spencer, who works with me on designing these communities, most of the time he's living in, in Vancouver Island or right now in Victoria. And the same sort of thing. I think we were looking at it the other day and going, I don't think you could find hardly anything for under eight or nine hundred thousand dollars. It was a teardown if it was. Right. So if you can sell that home and you've got some equity in that and you can put it down here into a market where you can not only live, but then you can have some rental revenue coming in as well. It's a pretty sweet deal and you have beautiful weather to deal with, too. So that is another aspect of the sustainability that probably was not really thought of at the very beginning, but it is. I mean, if you can be financially sustainable and you're growing your own food and you're producing your own energy and you're spending time with like-minded people, like you're at a net zero right from the beginning on all fronts and you can just live your life in peace. And then if you're Canadian, like you and I are, and you move out and you lose your Canadian residency, then you don't pay any tax anymore either. But you could still... Like if you were doing an online job of consulting or something like that or whatever your job was, these are jurisdictional tax countries down here for the most part, and they don't tax your income that's not made inside this country. So if you're in Panama, for instance, and you're making money online, you're not paying any tax on it. So well, that, you're not paying any tax here. And once you get rid of your Canadian residency, and like in our case, then you're pretty much tax free. Now, unfortunately for Americans, they need to you know lose their citizenship first, but there's other countries like Commonwealth countries that are based on residency. So I think that's a huge benefit. Like you said, you're sustainable. You're making rental revenue. You're living in a sustainable community where you could potentially grow all your own food and have almost no expenses. You've got solar power. So you're not really paying big bills. Water is virtually free and you've got no taxes. So what's not to love about all that? Yeah, sounds pretty good to me. And for my American listeners out there, if you guys need help and you want to actually figure out how to legally reduce your tax bill and take advantage of a lot of these same type of things, then if you guys go to expatmoney.com up in the top right-hand corner, there'll be an orange button there that says work with us. Click on that. There's a big letter there. Have a read and can apply to work with me because there are things that we can do. There are tools in the toolbox that we can do to help legally, if not eliminate, then drastically reduce your tax bill. Yeah, and I didn't mean to imply that Americans are having a good deal. I mean, you're the expert on that front. I'm, I'm not the expert. I'm the expert on the communities. Absolutely. Okay, so let's go back to the community a little bit on the community 
setting itself, the layout, the, I mean, you talked about the market quickly, but like the amenities, all of these types of things that are included in the communities. Yeah. And, and when we design communities, they each usually have a story. We don't really believe in the kind of build it and they will come thing. We want to build it. So people really want to live there and be there. Right. So the amenities, common areas that we call third spaces are really a big part of your life. And especially in these climates, right. And you're in a tropical climate all year round is comfortable. I mean, sometimes it's a little too warm, but it's never too cold. And so, you, you know, you can use the outdoors. That's why we tend to build a lot more efficient small homes too, right? Because really you're using your, your kitchen, your, your bathroom and your bedroom. I mean, your living space is outdoors, right? So you can consider that the whole community is kind of like your living room. And so we try to put in some very cool kind of amenities. We have like one of the communities I'm thinking of, we have like a, not only a music stage, like I was saying earlier, amphitheater where people can perform or poets can talk or whatever you want to watch, but a music studio where you can go in there with your guitar or keyboard or whatever and record your own things and, and those sorts of things. And, and obviously kiosks with, you know, different kinds of like food vendors and obviously restaurants and things like that and viewing parts. I mean, most of our communities are have some, some fantastic view, either of one of the oceans, mountains, volcanoes and different things like that. So it's always really walking paths and horse stables if you like to ride down a beach and at sunset and things like that. So we always include a lot of different things for people to do because I know it's always funny because people say, well, what do I do when I get there? Well, you'll be surprised you don't have enough time in the day. <laughs> You're going to be more complaining about, can I just have like a few hours to myself because <laughs> I'm always doing something. So the, the whole, obviously that helps with the rental revenue as well, right? Because people learn about these communities and say, oh, I, I want to be there. And we put in very unique types of things. Like one of the most recent communities that we just released in Nicaragua is a Spanish ranch type of style. And we like to be modern mixed with the kind of classic designs. And we think the homes are beautiful, but where you have a hitching post up front that used to be where your horse would be hitched in the old days. Now it's the plug-in for your electric golf cart, right? Which is powered by the solar of the home. But, it, you know, just trying to put in cool little things like that. We have a, what are they called? Swimming line between pools and stuff like that. And, you know, a lot of amenities for kids, playgrounds, like the fountains and things like that. So 20 years, 15 years ago, most of the people coming down here were retiring. Right Now it's a lot of young families and young, young couples and all shapes and sizes of people are coming down. And so, you know, our communities have certainly switched a little bit more towards being aimed at younger families. Well, and that's a good segue to the educational aspect. Now, we've got a call this week, I think, to have a specific meeting about joining Expat International School and the communities that you build and bringing a lot of the, the educational aspect that we do online and having a central place where they'll be able to do the video programs with the guides, but also you know, some of the science projects and the physical education and the playtime and all of these types of things can be done in person in the communities. Yeah, I'm really excited about that, Mikel. I think one of the things that we, you know, always had to work with in terms of location of our communities was, are we near a hospital? Or are we near schools? Those sorts of things. Now we're looking at bringing that in. You know, we've already done that with a clinic in one community where our foundation used us to design a clinic, and that's going to be opening up soon. But I'm really excited about the education side of things, having an you know, international school inside the community, like a brick and mortar kind of school, but in my mind, teaching much more logical things. 
No gender studies in our program. <laughs> yeah, hopefully, hopefully not. I mean, but even little things like teaching people about how the solar systems work, for instance, right? I mean, I think that's enormously valuable. I always think I came from a computer background and I theoretically could probably create a smartphone given enough time, right? But I just think if we had an end of days type of event and everybody's so used to using their iPhones, but nobody knows how they work. You know, some of those sort of things, like it, it doesn't have to necessarily be just technology, but how to change a tire right, on the car or whatever, whatever the thing is. Right? So I'm looking forward to, to seeing how your tool can, can really enhance the communities and it's exciting for us. Well, the main reason that I had started the school was because I had so many private clients who were moving down to Latin America or Europe or anywhere in the world, but they didn't know what to do for education for their kids. So that's why we really created the school in the first place, because I needed an option for all of them. And it's the same type of thing with the communities that you're building. There's so many families that are moving down and they're going to need education for the kids. So let's make it once again with like-minded people and focus on real life skills that are going to help them in their life and propel them forwards in this world instead of spending all of their time doing things that they absolutely hate. Yeah. And what better setting? I mean, one of the beauties about Latin America is that the wokeness kind of thing hasn't really hit here, at least not to a very big extent. So kids can learn at your school, then they can go out to the communities and they, they can still fit in with like-minded people, right? Because they're, they're just regular people all around them. So it, I'm really excited about it. it. Like you said, you were helping people move down here. And you know, for us, you know, education is one of the top three things people ask about. It's usually like, okay, what's the cost of living? I want to know I can live there. You know, is there a hospital nearby in case something happens? And three, education, right? And if you can fill those buckets, you can really make the community doable for almost anybody. Well, and I've got a private client that you also know, I won't say her name, but they're chiropractors who are moving down here and they do holistic medicine and really looking at the entire body. So they really want to understand more about the communities and then hopefully set up a practice inside the community. So we might even have on-site chiropractors for some of these as well, which would be great for me because my back is an absolute nightmare. So. <laughs> But even today in our, some of our communities, you know, we do have on-site chiropractors. We have on-site dentists. Uh, my wife's a doctor, a pediatrician. So it's always nice when she's in the communities. We do a lot of you know, brigades, medical and dental brigades in the communities too, where we bring in, you and I have talked about having a, a massive palapa for, you know, speaking events and stuff like that. But that would also double as like these medical brigades where we bring, uh, the last one we did, we had 800 kids come in over a couple of days. And, you know, all got checked out and make sure and, you know, got a prescription if they needed something. But it was pretty cool the number of kids that we could help. And that takes a lot of space. So all these things are getting designed into the community so that we can happen. What about things like fire or emergency services or anything like that? How are you tackling those problems? Most of the time it's with the largest village or town nearby has some kind of thing. And honestly, in many cases, we've had to raise funds to buy a fire truck or to, you know, have one donated into the local villages and things like that. I know one of the tiny villages in Nicaragua has a, a Kelowna, British Columbia fire truck written across it. So I, it's pretty obvious where that one came from. <laughs> but I mean, there's great healthcare in these countries, but it's the great healthcare is really in the private side of things. The public healthcare is generally a little less great and they don't have the budget to have you know, ambulances and things like that. So in one case, we raised funds and got a Toyota Prado or a Land Cruiser and basically built it into an ambulance, you know, help them get their clinic to have a, a way of getting patients. And 
So, you know, there is a collaborative effort with some of that, depending on where the communities are. In a lot of cases, we're near enough to a city that they have a, you know, a massive hospital if, if need be. Well, the other thing to think about with the, on the same topic as the fires is the material that you're using for all of the homes that you build. Yeah, I mean, generally, 99% of the home is concrete, concrete and steel. Try to light that on fire, right? It, it just doesn't burn. So, you know, it's funny, even the way you clean the homes, like the local cleaning method is just get a bucket of soapy water and dump it on the floor and start swishing it around. Well, if you're used to living in a home with carpet, that doesn't work so well. But down here, everything's tile. You know, there's drains in the floor and that's how it's cleaned. But on the fire side, yeah, I mean, you could light your drapes on fire, I guess, and, and they would burn and be gone and your house would still be there without really any difference. So smell of smoke, maybe. But, you know, so, you know, when we're talking about fire trucks, it's honestly, it's aimed more at barns and things like that for, you know, things that are built out of wood, which our homes are typically not. Yeah, I think it's important to note the quality of the build of these places, because these are not like just throwing up in an afternoon. I mean, these are really sturdy properties. And I mean, in Panama, we don't deal with hurricanes or anything like that, but some of the other countries in Central America, you do. So you have to build to a certain standard. Yeah, yeah, and exactly on the Caribbean side. I mean, even in the Caribbean, people don't necessarily realize that most of the hurricanes are in the northern side up by the Gulf of Mexico. And as you get like down to the Panamanian side of, of the Caribbean, is almost never gets hit by hurricanes, right? You know, on a spectrum along there. But yeah, any one of our homes, you know, could withstand a Cat 5 hurricane because they're they're solid foot and a half wide concrete walls. They're not going anywhere. And in, on the Caribbean side, you always have the option of having hurricane category four or five windows installed. And, and so at the end of the day, the, the home's going to be there. I mean, I, to, to be honest on the homes that I have, I mean, we get so much warning nowadays on hurricanes, you know, they're coming for days. So I, I just board up the windows if I think there's going to be a hurricane and take the boards down when it's over because category five windows are expensive. But I mean, that goes towards, you know, materials in general. I know the other day you and I were talking about the cost of things going up, right? And that is true. It's still a good time to buy now because we're, we're still able to keep the prices fairly low. And, you know, like we talked about earlier, and generally in Central and South America, the prices are low anyway. But we are certainly seeing, like I've seen things like rebar go up as much as 300% in the last little while. So it's going to impact the prices of the homes going forward in this region as well. But if you buy now, I guess that's a good thing because you get the capital gain that's kind of built in with that. And if you're paying X for a home and somebody's paying one and a half times X three years later, well, you just got a, a good boost in, in the revenue or capital of your home. Yeah. I mean, putting your money into tangible assets, I think, is the name of the game at the moment. I mean, get it out of like risky derivatives, manipulated markets, get into things that you can actually touch and feel and smell and I mean, taste. Probably you don't want to taste your home, but still, you know what I mean? You know, like tangible things. And real estate, you know, traditionally keeps up with inflation because we're going to be seeing, well, we technically we already are seeing record inflation. And I think it's only going to get worse at this point. Yeah. And, and we're, you know, we're talking about like the supply chain and thing. It's not as a, much of an effect in these regions on food and things like that, because like we we're talking about earlier, you can grow your own food basically. But when it comes to materials, like you can't really make your own rebar and, and concrete and things like that. So, or glass for windows and stuff. So when it comes to the cost of homes, that is definitely getting impacted worldwide. 
Okay. That makes perfect sense. All right. Talk to us a little bit about the homes themselves, the size of the home or the layout of the home, because you're kind of known as the tiny home guy. And I kind of like to tease you about this, but you guys actually do more than just tiny homes, right? Yeah. I have a friend that calls me tiny homes. I got to get rid of that moniker, <laughs> but you know, I, the, the reason that well, I guess we're well known for, you know, Eco Villages is well known for tiny homes as we kind of introduced the concept into this region. We really wanted to perfect it. It came from Spencer, my son, and I living on a boat for, for a while and years. And, and like I told you, the story of bringing that to land. So we loved that idea. We wanted to make these very inexpensive, tiny homes. But we also do, you know, more other types of homes. We have state homes that are very large, you know, four or five bedrooms. We've just done a few for the community in, in Belize that are you know, 4,000, 5,000 square feet. We do a lot of mid-sized homes. My mid-size, I, I kind of consider like 1,100 to 2,000 square feet, two, three-bedroom homes, still efficiently designed. And again, because of the climate that we're building in, it's all about airflow and connection with the, with nature and stuff like that. So it, where in some community, we have a 300 out of 365 days a year, we have east to west breezes across the ocean. And we plan the houses that way and we put in clear story windows and things to get that, you know, that also minimizes your air conditioning bill if you can keep your house cool by having sea breezes cool it off. So we do a lot of stuff on much bigger homes too and and condominiums and hotel buildings and restaurants and things like that. We've done, we designed all sorts of stuff and developed into the communities. So yeah, I, I mean, I'm proud of what we do on the tiny home side. I think we have tiny homes in just about every community because they're popular. Like I said, especially in a community, in a climate where you can live outdoors a lot of the time. But that's certainly not all we do. You said the other day you're looking at potentially getting a place and it wouldn't be a tiny home. Your wife wouldn't put up with that. It's like, I understand. We, <laughs> we make bigger homes, too. Yeah. So she was like, Baube, we can move to Patrick's community, but I'm not living in a tiny home. And I'm like, don't worry, <laughs> me neither. I need a big place to live. I mean, I homeschool my kids. I mean, my kids will go to my online school when they're old enough, but I homeschool and I have a home office and I got two kids and hopefully more kids on the way at some point. So it's like, no, I'm not living in a tiny home. Yeah, well, that's not usually the demographic that's moving into the tiny home. <laughs> I do think they're really cool, though. I do think that they're really neat, the tiny home concept. But I think you have to match it to the right person. I mean, if it's a retired couple who are just coming home, they're empty nesters, then absolutely, that makes perfect sense. Or if you're solo, then come down and get a tiny home and enjoy the amenities of the community. But if you're a growing family, maybe you're going to want something a little bit bigger. Right, but you, you would be surprised. I think people's perception of tiny homes is like something on wheels in North America, but we don't have that restriction. We have regular concrete foundations and a slab. Some of our tiny homes are two bedroom, two bathrooms. So, you know, with beautiful big decks and things like that. So we're not restricted to the shape of a mobile home, right? So that's unfortunate in North America for, you know, at least. I, I'm not familiar with Europe and their, their restrictions on tiny homes, but I know in a lot of parts of the world, it's got to be on wheels. It's got to be something you can basically get on the road and, and take away, or you can't get a permit to put it somewhere. And that's not a case in, in Central and South America. So we, we build regular, you know, shaped homes, concrete homes, like I said, often two bedroom, two bathroom. And we, we do tiny home conferences or speaking on tiny home conferences. And they're, what, what do you mean two bedrooms, huh? two bathrooms? That's not a tiny home. It's like, yeah, it's under... In this case, under 600 square feet, which is the definition of tiny home. So, yeah, it is. So just efficiently using the space then. 
Exactly. That's it. So, it's, I mean, all our homes are efficiently using space. We don't put in a lot of wasted space because it's just extra cost that you're never going to use. We, like I said, we have some homes that are four or five bedrooms. They're big estate homes. Uh, that's what I'll take. I'll take the five bedroom. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I love the conversation about the communities and everything like that. Now I want to pivot a little bit and I want to talk about Maven, but I still want to keep things on track for the real estate, for the communities. First of all, give us an, a quick explanation of what is Maven and then how it does fit into this. Well, maybe I'll start with the how it fits in first, because we were designing Bitcoin Beach in the El Salvador community. I mean, I was always into crypto. I unfortunately wasn't into crypto enough to buy it like in 2011 or 12. A little later, I got into some of it. And we had the opportunity to design a community at Bitcoin Beach or based around the Bitcoin economy, basically, when I was telling you about mining Bitcoin based on treadmills and things like that. It was all part of that. And so I got really interested in that. And then I learned about NFTs, you know, not to go on in too much into the weeds, but an NFT is a non-fungible token, basically. And non-fungible isn't the common words that we use these days, but a fungible token would be, you have a dollar in your pocket, I have a dollar in my pocket. We can exchange those dollars and we still have the same thing. Non-fungible is something unique. If, if you buy my home from me, that's this home, not not another one beside it, right? It's unique unto itself. So that's non-fungible, basically unique. And a non-fungible token, when it comes to real estate, so anyway, the real estate is clumsy. Buying real estate is just bloody clumsy. That's the, the reality of it. You know, especially in North America, Europe, and it's become so bureaucratic. You know, there's so many things, you know, homeowners insurance and blah, 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 and, and everything. Well, the beauty with an NFT is that you can make it really simple. And I won't go into all the guts of how we've done it, but, you know, we're very excited because we just recently sold our first piece of property or our first condominium, actually, in Nicaragua as an NFT. And what that means is there's so many pieces to it, but it really, the NFT is stored on a blockchain. And I don't want to go into much detail about what a blockchain is, but it really is, at its essence, there's like thousands of servers around the world that are storing this thing. And if anybody tries to change any one or five of them, this in your contract, the rest of them go, no, that's not cool. You can't delete it. You can't change it. This is stored forever and eternity. And so there's tons of security to it. There's a lot of anonymity to it, which people like as well. So for instance, in the case where we have sold a property as an NFT, it's actually a property owned by an LLC, a limited liability company. So the LLC in this jurisdiction that we've chosen, you could buy it from me and your name goes on to the LLC inside the NFT and gives you actual ownership of that company and that company owns that condominium. So that's really the function that we're doing it. And you know, there's a lot of companies out there that have been trying to do this one for seven years. And they, you know, they failed a lot of ways because they tried to change the world to fit the NFT model. And we came at it from another direction and said, we're gonna make the NFT fit how real estate can work. And I think the other reason why we've been successful with it now is that because we came from the real estate world, we already had the supply. Like, you know, we didn't have to go out and get people to say, oh, okay, I'll list it on your marketplace. I'll put my house in, in Honduras on your marketplace or in Belize or Panama or wherever, or my condominium or my, my piece of land or whatever it is. We already had that. We had the supply. So we were able to immediately put up our marketplace and we developed it ourselves on the Bitcoin liquid sidechain, if anybody that's technical into the blockchains. And it's, it's amazing. Like we just sold one this last week. It was instantaneous. You can set up the royalties on it. So we had a real estate agent, like typical, 
right? They got their percentage listed on there and the, uh, the marketplace itself takes a small percentage. And then of course the seller gets their component. And if you have government transfer taxes, they can even have their line. So everybody has a wallet and the instant that thing sold, like they clicked on the button, yep, I'm buying it. All their wallets got filled instantly with their Bitcoin. And then if people wanted to change that back into US dollar or crypto, then they can instantly as well. So, you know, we have a lot of sellers that are like, I have a home, I don't really understand this Bitcoin nano T thing. And I'm just telling them, look, there's a big market out there that wants to buy this and own it as an NFT because it's it's simple, it's fast, it's almost free, secure, and all these benefits. So you don't have to worry about it. The moment that Bitcoin hits your wallet, change it into US dollars and you're good to go or whatever currency you want. So really, it's, it's just starting to take off now. And people, you know, obviously, there's a long learning curve for a lot of people, but it's not for everyone. I mean, as you know, in Central America, there's not a lot of inspections, right? So of, of homes, right? There's really, you go into Honduras and you try to hire an inspector, like that's not a job. You, you might be able to call your buddy and say, okay, can you go check out this house? I'm thinking of buying it. I can't make it down there right now. Or you go check it out yourself or whatever. So, you know, we can eliminate pieces like of that or, or we can have that as a service where you can, you can check a box and you go, okay, for $200, somebody's going to go and do an inspection report. And that becomes an NFT as well. And not to ramble, but one of the coolest parts, I think we did the most difficult NFT real, in real estate ever as the first one a, few, a little while ago. And the reason for that was it was also had uh, financing involved. So in this case... There was a bank on that piece. In this case, there's five years of financing before a balloon payment. So that's 60 payments, 60 monthly payments. And each one of those payments is an NFT as well. So when they click on that, the bank gets their payment every month. You know, if you're the buyer and you run across a good month and you've made a few extra bucks and you go, you know what, I'm going to pay the next three months worth of my payments. You just go click, click, click and bang, you're done, right? You're good for the next three months. And it's instant. And like I said, it that costs about six cents in transaction fees. Neither of you even have to have a bank account. That's a complete game changer. Like legit, that is crazy. I knew that you were working on this. I didn't really understand who, how it worked with the company ownership. Now it makes a lot more sense because I do come from more of the traditional sense. Now, I mean, I'm huge into crypto, but trying to merge it with the physical tangible assets that we were talking about throughout our conversation, I think is a complete game changer. I assume that this also eliminates the need for escrow then as well. Absolutely. I mean, that's not to get into the technical things, but it's called an atomic swap on the blockchain. When you click, on, let's say you're buying a condo from me, when you click on that purchase button, your Bitcoin goes into my wallet in the same transaction that my NFT of ownership goes into yours. So it's one transaction and there's no reason for escrow because you don't have to worry whether I'm going to get my ownership and have some lawyer involved, which is also nice. There's no legal fees if you don't want them. This entire transaction, the buyer went and did their due diligence, and this entire transaction of all fees included was under 50 cents. So <laughs> for a, for a six-figure condo purchase, right? So we're actually in the meeting with some of the, the Central American governments in the next few months. And one of the things that we do want to try to make them understand is that if we can get past the LLC component and make the, the property title itself an NFT, which El Salvador is working on right now, but some of the other countries that we're talking to as well, the benefit for these countries, like people don't understand, like when you own a property in Panama or whatever, any one of these countries, if you're local, you're typically not paying property tax every year. You're only going to pay it when you sell it 
And you're going to take the proceeds of your sales in order to catch up basically on all the years that we didn't pay the property tax. And, and that's pretty typical down here. And, you know, people that have had farms for 50 years and that's never had a cent paid in property tax have a bit of a whopping bill to pay when, when they sell it. But that's pretty typical. Well, what does that do? That means the government doesn't have any source of revenue. So for the governments, one of the things that helps them generate some of that property tax revenue, in fact, an NFT can be set up. And even the royalty, let's just not even property taxes, just talk about transfer tax. So in this case, in Nicaragua, the property sells, there's a 4% transfer tax on that property. Well, the government can have a wallet and that royalty of 4% can be attached to that wallet as well, to that NFT. So when that NFT sells, instantly the government's got its transfer tax. And 99% of the time they don't get it because they, they don't have a collection agency or department. So they don't know how to even go after people that aren't honest to pay their, their transfer taxes. And they just never get it. But with this, it would be a huge source of income. And you know, we're not trying to go around paying to do taxes by, by doing this. So it's way better for them as a government from a revenue source. So there's lots of benefits for all the players. It's just getting everybody to understand. There's no benefit for lawyers. So I guess that's a problem. <laughs> <laughs> that's okay. I think the lawyers have had their fill over the last couple hundred years. We'll keep them busy in other aspects of life. Don't worry. Yeah. The other cool thing that I know about Maven is we're actually doing the Founders Edition tickets for our summit, which is happening November 7th to 11th. So our Founders tickets, we're basically doing them as an NFT and we're using your Maven network. We're still working out all of the details, but they should be ready in the next week or so. So I'm pretty excited about this to actually start sending them out to all the people who have purchased the Founders Edition tickets. But what's going to be cool is that if someone decides that they want to sell their ticket down the road, then they're going to be able to do that. And then the person who purchased it will have all of these benefits that are included like lifetime access to the VIP level and a whole bunch of other things like invitations to the investment tours that we're starting, special privileges and seating at the live events. There's just going to be so many things that are included in this Founders Edition ticket, and it's all going to be done through an NFT. Yeah, we're excited about that too. Tickets basically represent a contract between two people, right? So that they fit in perfectly into an NFT. And you can get so creative like you're doing with your summit. I'm excited to see how that all comes together and I'm guessing it'll be on in the next couple of weeks. We'll be able to start minting those NFTs and it's going to be very cool. Here's another example. We have a rainforest conservancy NFT where, you know, you want to support hundred square feet of rainforest in Costa Rica. You can buy that. One of my favorite ones is our Vita Verde agroforestry one where that's got so many multiple pieces to it that it's almost hard for people to understand. But we decide to support local artists and local people within the community whenever one of these NFTs sold. So you can invest in a teak, an avocado, and stevia farm. That's an agroforestry farm, and not to go into agroforestry in definition, but the, the benefit is it, it has a great return over the next 25 years. And, you know, so people, grandparents are buying it for their grandchildren for college education later or something like that. But it's also, you know, the avocado are producing over time. But the cool thing I think about it is that when you sell an NFT, you can mark off which royalties or which percentages go where. And we take a percentage and we have, you know, to, to local villagers around the farm. So there's the fishermen can get paid a, a small royalty in, in Bitcoin and he can take that Bitcoin and go to the corner store and buy bread for his family or whatever. And it just becomes, you know, a, a crypto or Bitcoin economy. 
that's kind of how the El Salvador thing started in, in Bitcoin Beach, right? It was a grassroots kind of movement by creating a mini little economy. And then it, it caught on and people went, wow, this is working great. We're doing that in different countries as we can too, but kind of generating the, the flame for that by just, you know, kind of forcing it in, right? People are like, oh, I got, look at my wallet. I got some money to spend today. When people working at our farm can get a, a little bit paid in Bitcoin. And then we, you know, we get the community all excited about it to say, it's like their own currency. You know, people think that Bitcoin is, crypto is volatile. And in the last couple of weeks, yeah, but nobody ever complains when it's volatile to the up end. They only complain when it's volatile down. <laughs> but then if you look at, you know, some of the countries down here, you look at an Argentina or whatever. I was there a year and a half ago and it was something like 24, 25 to one to the US dollar. Now it's two to 300 to one, right? So, I mean, that kind of volatility makes crypto look very stable, right? So, you know, the... People are thinking, well, why would you want to create these crypto economies for in these areas? Well, they're, A, they're decentralized. Nobody can print more money and control them. And, and B, it's actually less volatile than their own currencies many, many times. So with the communities that you're building, we're going to have the sustainability from all fronts that we discussed, but you're actually going to be able to buy and sell the properties via Bitcoin on the liquid network. And all the commerce that are done in the communities can be voluntary and also done through Bitcoin. So we can actually have voluntary agreements with the people that work there and have them paid out, which supports the community itself. Exactly. Yeah. Even today, you can buy any one of our community properties with crypto if you want. Brilliant. Patrick, I love the conversation. I love the work that you do. I'm a big fan. If our listeners want to get a hold of you, if they want to find out more about what you do, where can we send them? We love working with you too, Mikel, and I appreciate you having me on the show. And we'd like them to go send emails to expat at ecovillages.life. That's .life, not .com. Sometimes people get confused. Or if you're interested in the Maven marketplace, you can send it to expat at mavennft.io. So, and of course, the mavennft.io or ecovillages.life websites are, have a lot of information on them as well. Go to www.ecovillages.life is, is uh, you know, see a lot of our communities that are on the website there. And on the Maven side, it's mavennft.io. So M-A-V-E-N-N-F-T.io. And again, you can contact us through anything, on the contact pages on those, on those sites. And I'm happy to answer any questions people have. You know, usually these conversations generate more questions than they answer, but it's always good to, to get involved. and get, I love seeing people you know, excited about this stuff and don't hesitate to ask any questions too. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Patrick. And I'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Mikel. Appreciate it. Bye-bye. Okay. What an amazing interview today. I hope you guys got a lot of knowledge, a lot of inspiration, and really learned something new. If you guys have kids or grandkids or nieces or nephews or neighbors or anybody who is not agreeing with what's happening in the school systems today, if they have a international flavor, if they are digital nomads or want to be digital nomads, if they're expats or international families, homeschooling, world schooling, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, then I want you guys to check out our brand new program and expat school. .io. That's right, expatschool.io. This is an amazing program that I've built with my very good friend, Michael Strong. He was actually a guest on episode 115 of the podcast back, what's that, a year or so ago, and we've been working hard since we met to build this school. He has a background in education. He's actually been doing curriculum design for over 30 years for Montessori programs, and he's a published author, and his experience in education is just 
unbelievable. So I think that I really chose the best partner possible on planet Earth for this. The full name of the school is Expat International School of Freedom and Entrepreneurship. So we're going to have a strong emphasis on programs and skills and abilities that will actually enable your child to build something, to be creative, to use their hands, to add value to the world, which is really what this show is all about. There's going to be second languages. There's going to be things like blockchain technology. I mean, actually get your kids prepared for what's happening in the world. You're going to give them a massive advantage over every other family out there. So as you can see, I am really excited about this. I hope you guys get a chance to take a look. It's at expatschool.io. You can sign up for our free newsletter to make sure that you stay in touch with us and hear about all the new news. And if it makes sense for your kids, if you have kids that are between the ages of 8 to 19, then schedule a call with us. We'll all sit down and go through the program and see if it makes sense for you and your family. That's it. Go to expatschool.io, and I will see you next Wednesday on the podcast. Have a great week. This episode may be over, but your journey to greatness continues by visiting our webpage and signing up for our newsletter. For convenient access to new episodes, show notes, and other crucial resources, visit expatmoneyshow.com. We look forward to you joining us on the next episode of the Expat Money Show. Safe travels. I have managed to secure exclusive rights to a block of villas in one of the hottest up-and-coming regions in my current home country, Panama. Join me Saturday, May 4th at 10 a.m. Central, 11 a.m. Eastern Time for our special presentation called Investors Workshop, capitalizing on the globally recognized resort brand coming to Panama. We will discuss how the tourism landscape in this region will change rapidly upon the public announcement of this project and how I have secured the rights for my clients to capitalize on this opportunity before anyone else. Thanks to my connections in the region, I have negotiated pricing that front runs everyone else. Think early, early bird pricing. From gourmet restaurants to vibrant clubs, poolside activities, and even live bands, this resort is going to pump some serious life into the region. But this isn't what excites me or what should excite you either. The exciting part is that these world-class amenities and top brand will attract tens of thousands of tourists. Tourists who will fork over top dollar to stay at our investment properties. Register free at expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. That's expatmoney.com forward slash webinars to register for this free real estate workshop. See you on May 4th at 10 a.m. Central Time. That's 11 a.m. Eastern time, go to expatmoney.com forward slash webinar.